and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for August 13th, 2020, the cheap, mediocre tests edition. I am David Plotz of Business Insider from Washington, D.C. New setup today in my bedroom, and I am joined from New York City by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. Is that a permanent new setup or? Um... I'm just trying out different rooms in my new apartment. Okay. Because last last week was a little echoey. I was in my son's room last week. Well, a he's sleeping, and b it's uh, it was echoey. So now I'm in my bedroom. So we'll okay, see how I it just, goes. Uh, you know, I'm very uh, change makes me nervous. So I just want to make sure that you know <laughs> um, that laugh, that mild chuckle of <laughs> not much amusement was from Josie Duffy Rice. Hello, Josie. Hi, I was very amused. I want to clarify. Josie is president of The Appeal. She is in Atlanta. And of course, she is a a favorite host. And she is hosting because Emily is somewhere else. I don't even know. Probably on vacation. I would assume it's August. She must be on vacation. So I hope you're vacating, Emily. On today's GabFest, it's Kamala Harris. How will Joe Biden's running mate affect the race? And how will her selection shaped democratic politics for the decade to come. Then the federal government has basically given up on the coronavirus, on the pandemic, even though it remains a disaster. Will President Trump's unilateral moves help the economy, which still suffers? Uh, and will, will negotiations over a huge coronavirus relief bill revive? Then we are joined by epidemiologist Michael Mina, whom I raved about last week in my cocktail chatter to talk about a different way to test for COVID that could really improve and change the course of the pandemic. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. Kamala Harris is Joe Biden's running mate. Harris is the first black woman, the first Asian American, the first graduate of an HBCU to be on the ticket for a major party. She is, of course, a senator from California, a former attorney general of California, and a presidential candidate. Josie. Yes. This is a historic moment for the country. You are a black woman, a black woman who is also a lawyer who works in criminal justice like Kamala Harris. I'm interested in how, why you think it's important. And also maybe I'm interested in how this struck you as a matter of representation, how it made you feel to have a black woman on the ticket. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm a black woman who works in criminal justice, right? So the past few days have been hearing from both sides of everybody. I think it's, I think it's a great choice. I think she's just an incredibly impressive and symbolic pick for this role. Uh, and I think she's going to be a great compliment to to the vice president. And I think it's also worth noting just how impressive she's been, especially in the Senate. Um, she's, you know, been one of the very few people to call for monthly payments um, in this moment of pandemic. She's been like one of the most progressive senators c consistently over her career. And I really hope that she can sort of underscore the importance of working with more left voices, including grassroots voices, to the administration if they if they are successful, which I it looks very tentatively like they will be. Do you think that she is a radical choice or a conventional choice? I think she's a pretty conventional choice, right? Like who would be a radical? I mean, like <laughs> the Senate is just not a radical body. None of the choices were particularly radical. Val Demings isn't radical. Like, um, you know, Susan Rice isn't radical. So we weren't like starting from a place of 
here's here's like there's no a there was no like is he gonna pick AOC choice here right and so I think she's a fair she's a pretty conventional choice she knows how things work she's a she's a um establishment politician and I say that in the way meaning like she's not she works from the inside she's not a change maker from the outside right but I think that's good right now I I was really thrilled and surprised to see that at least among my communities, people were thrilled. There was rave reviews. And I think even among people who have been skeptical of her previous criminal justice record, which I think has been fair skepticism at, at points in the past, um, are, see her as someone who's evolving, who's changing on the issue, and who can really make a major difference um, when it matters. And I believe in that. Like, I believe that Joe Biden has has changed a lot in his time. And that doesn't mean he won't have to be pushed left. But it means we're not dealing with the Joe Biden of 1991. <laughs> we're dealing with the Joe Biden of 2020. We're dealing with the Kamala Harris of 2020. And, and I think it's a good mix of people who are open to progressive ideas and people who work pretty squarely within the system. John, I'm interested. You do, do this probably every four years, probably more often than every four years. You give us some disquisition on the relevance or irrelevance of vice presidential choices for campaigns. Obviously, they're relevant for getting the, the country relevant for the future. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But for campaigns, how much do they matter? So I'm interested. What does Harris bring to the Biden ticket in terms of issues or turnout or states or anything or is it simply that you know she she'll be fine and she doesn't disqualify him in any way yeah so the scholarship and the conventional wisdom i think it's conventional now although we're all analyzing the the dickens out of this decision is that vice presidents don't really affect uh the vote too much it's basically people vote on the top of the ticket having said that i find it hard to fully embrace that scholarship because we see the way in which bad vice presidential picks have been a distraction from campaigns. Um, and also, I should, one other big caveat, we're in a funky election in COVID-19 time where traditional rules don't as may not necessarily apply. And so the extent that this was an attempt, this was a chance to focus on the Biden campaign, focus on Joe Biden, focus on the, the message and, the, um, uh, and all the things Josie talked about, that's different in this context because it's not competing with a lot of other stuff that Joe Biden has done. So, so I think we have to be careful about um, looking at the past to reflect on this moment because this moment is so different. But I think if you're a presidential candidate, you want to do two things with your vice presidential pick. You want to pick somebody who excites your voters or at least doesn't turn them off. But you don't want to do that at the expense of craziness for the next three months between now and Election Day. So John McCain picked Sarah Palin, excited the base of his party that he was having difficulty with. But then she went rogue, as she ultimately uh, said herself. Um, and also it undermined his argument of the campaign, which was you had to have experience in the job. You had to have a certain kind of experience to hold the job. But then she didn't have that kind of experience. And therefore, it was it was it undermined his claim she was ready from day one. So I think Kamala Harris both seems to be exciting Democrats and she's a pretty cautious politician. She understands the dance steps that will be required to fit into the vice presidential role. Or I, I mean, I think, and she's she's shown herself um, able to kind of 
follow the routines of politics. 17 of the last 19 Democratic vice presidential picks have been senators or former senators. So she's very conventional in in that sense. That is I didn't realize that that's a shocking and and truly depressing statistic. Well, it it perhaps. But what it shows is that the grooves of of what you're looking for here are um, are pretty set. And so that's to Josie's point. She's very conventional. I, I find her interestingly Pence like I, I know that's going to be offensive to people, but in the way that she embodies kind of the median voter of her party and in the way that she's a deeply conventional opportunistic politician, I feel she is very similar to Mike Pence. Um, but in the way that the median voter in the Republican Party is some middle-aged Christian white guy, the median voter in the Democratic Party is a, a woman of color of middle age. And and Kamala Harris is, embodies that, but in an extremely kind of conventional politician way. She's not somebody who radiates idealism, who radiates ideology, who radiates kind of a vision about things. She seems, she's like a politician. And I, I say that with... That is a compliment coming from me. I believe in politicians should be good at politics. And she seems like that's who she is. I but I actually want to get to why, if she is good at the ways that we talk about it, why, Josie, was her presidential campaign such a wet rag? It's undeniable that people are more comfortable with Joe Biden in the driver's seat, in part because of his gender and his race, I think, and probably also because of the fact that he's been, you know, vice president for eight years in the past. I think also like she, people were really grappling with her record as prosecutor and as someone who works in criminal justice, like I've had that same experience in the past, right? I will say that like I focus a lot on prosecutors and being a prosecutor is very difficult when you run for higher office for the reason that you've dealt with hundreds of thousands of cases. And so your record is extremely long. There's no question that you've made decisions left and right that like people at first glance are not going to like and maybe for for totally good reason that's not to say that she didn't make some decisions I don't think I would have made I do think that context matters in terms of timing she was a DA in a time when the idea of a progressive DA was not really a thing at all but I also think like this is not that job being a prosecutor is not being vice president. Being vice president is not being senator. And so trying to figure out where someone can do the, can make the most change in the most progressive way, I think really matters. And then I think the other important thing is like, who were the other choices? That's not just, I think she would be a great choice regardless, but I don't think there was this other person that everybody was really excited about. And I think in the way that she has more personality and more kind of, um, she's more engaging than someone like Tim Kaine, right? That she's someone that you remember when she questions Kavanaugh. I remember when Jeff Sessions said, you're making me nervous. That was like one of my favorite quotes when she was questioning him. You're making, you're making me nervous. She, she ha There's something about her that is fun to watch, right? In good times and bad. And okay. I think that's great. Right, right. But so, okay, I t all agree. Why was she such a bad presidential candidate? I don't think people are as open to voting for black women and as a president as they are for vice president. I don't think that's the only thing. We like to believe that like we're ready for a black woman president. And meanwhile, we have like the most racist president we can imagine. And those two things are really actually hard for me to... Um, 
to make make sense in the sense that like there's still a lot of anti-women, anti-black sentiment, right? And who and who gets a job like this? I would add just one tiny little thing about what this tells us about Joe Biden. Um, you know, he's basically a guy who 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 puts grudges aside to get things done. That's what you do as a senator. You rail against somebody and you have disagreements and then you basically make deals with them. And so this reminded me a little bit, a little bit. So it reminded me of Reagan picking Bush, who obviously was a tough opponent in the 1980 race. And then and then Bob Dole picking Jack Kemp in 1996, where I mean, Jack Kemp, people think that that Kamala Harris was tough on on Biden. Jack Kemp spent his whole career basically torpedoing Bob Dole and then Dole picked him. So in the in the <laughs> pantheon of, of president vice presidential picks, this one's not really at the top. But it did speak to me to that sort of senatorial thing where you just sort of don't hold grudges and 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 move on. And the final point to your question about running as president, there was this weird analysis that said, well, she had a bad presidential campaign as if that were a problem for her as a vice presidential nominee. If you look at the last two Democratic vice presidential nominees, Joe Biden was not a good presidential candidate um, in in 88 or in 08. And Al Gore wasn't a picnic, you know, didn't do very well either. So it's almost as if being a bad vice, being a bad primary Democratic candidate makes you the perfect vice president if if you judge from the last two that did it. Yeah, actually, let's. Well, there's several different channels I want to I want to float down. The first is actually following on that, Josie. Um, John has said that it is. Conventional wisdom tells us that the Harris pick probably will not affect the race too much or the vote too much. However, what it has done, it has made Kamala Harris arguably the most likely person in the world to be the most important person in the world over the next decade. Mm -hmm. She is the person now most likely to be a Democratic nominee for president in four years and eight years, most likely to be president given the sort of shape of the electorate in this country, the inside track to lead the America's largest political party. So in that sense, what is this a is this a good choice? And what do you think Harris as a not as a do, does she help Biden in Wisconsin? But what change will she bring to America and to the world if she ends up as the as the truck driver uh, for the 18 wheeler that is America? Yeah, you know, on some level, it feels so hard to predict that. And I think part of that is because I'm a fairly risk averse person. But what the world looks like in a few years is virtually impossible for me to imagine at this point, because I could not have predicted the world looking like this four years ago. I I think that she's a great and a safe pick. And I want to focus on safe because she kind of is like a calm boat in in a rough storm. And I think that there's real value in that to people right now. The chaos of the past four years has been, has made so many people's lives much more anxiety ridden, regardless of your political party, not feeling like, you know, what's coming down the hatch is an extremely stressful way to live. And you know, what's coming down the hatch with Kamala Harris, I think. And I think that that's really a benefit right now. Um, And so in that way, like, Picturing her in 10 years, I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but I I can imagine it much better than I can imagine the Tom Cotton world of 10 years from now or the the Donald Trump world, obviously, of 10 years from now. And that in itself is reassuring to me. You know, just so picking up on that, the 
Biden's trying to present himself as kind of a bridge to the future with Kamala Harris, which is to say she adds dynamism and just it's a much more uh, youthful oriented uh, ticket when you have um, when you have somebody who's 55 uh, when you're 77. Um, But to Josie's point, she's also in that um, groove that allows him to be a, a bridge to the past, which is to say a bridge to normalcy. And, and his convention is going to be dedicated in part to basically saying those old fashioned ideas of integrity and character and restraint and respect for the office, you know, those would come back with a Biden presidency. And she feels completely in keeping with those norms of politics, even though she's a candidate of the future it still is able to fit in the box of the, you know, a um, kind of a traditional candidate, establishment candidate, which is part of the Biden message. Actually, let's turn to that, John. That was another another channel I wanted to hit, which is the conventions and the the shape of the campaign to come. So you work at CBS, so I'm sure you're at least aware of how they're going to cover it. Do you think these conventions are going to be covered? Are they going to are they going to be visual and and present spectacles in the way that conventions of the past have been. Is there anything you've read about in terms of how each of the parties is going to conduct their convention that makes you think one of them is going to be valuable for the party, more well, valuable for a party? As far as what the networks will do, I know at least I'll be at a desk in Washington, D.C. for two straight weeks every night from from 10 to 11. Oh, come. Yeah. Let's have a drink. Um, Let's yeah, have a drink. no, we should. But I'll be working from 10 to 11 um, on the TV. Um, but that's, you know, it's one hour. So it's and it's going to be I mean, Biden won't be in Milwaukee. Um, and the, some of the speeches will be pre-recorded. All the serendipity. The last time we really had a seren- you know, a moment of surprise at a convention was in 1980 when Bush was announced as as Reagan's VP. And then in the Democratic race, Kennedy almost took it away from Jimmy Carter. But since then, surprises have been banned from conventions. It's not like they mean a lot, but it's it's interesting. Most of the time, parties try to up the stakes when they have a convention. They try to get everybody excited and talk about how important the election is. Nobody has to add any drama to what's happening in America right now. Um, the Republicans have planned a nightly surprise from 10 to 11. This is an attempt, of course, to goose the ratings. I wonder if America needs a nightly surprise. I think America's, Mm -hmm. I think America would like us, I mean, they're getting enough nightly surprises on the evening news. I think they could use a a nightly sedation, frankly. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I'm. You should have, you could have story time. What Republican would you want to read you like a nice bedtime story? Yeah, I don't know. But Goodnight Moon from 10 to 11 would would be, might be just Oh my God, that'd be awesome. Um, So. So I think, you know, so it'll be really interesting to see how some of that stuff sorts. And then I think the other thing that, that is just constantly in my mind as we think about conventions and as we think about all this coverage for the next 80 some odd days is how the country reacts is different than how the voters in the, you know, half a dozen states that are going to determine the election act. And we just always have to keep that in mind. Um, and uh, so I'll be trying to think that through as well. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And we at Slate really appreciate you becoming Slate Plus members. It is very valuable to have your support during these really difficult times for Slate and other media organizations. And and the 
funds that you're giving and support you're giving is essential for Slate being able to do its work. So if you're in a position to become a Slate Plus member and to support the work Slate's doing, I want to encourage you to do it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. On our Slate Plus segment today, we're going to talk about what we would do if we had one day off from the pandemic. If the pandemic sort of vanished magically for a moment, what would we do? How would we spend that day? Again, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GapFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The economy remains dreckish. The United States is suffering more than any rich economy in the world because of the pandemic. Yet Congress and the president are no longer even negotiating about another relief bill. At the end of last week, we got the unsurprising but still scary constitutional end run by the president who issued some executive orders that vaguely wave at the massive problems that the economy faces and the relief bill that had been under negotiation would try to solve. He's taking some FEMA money and using it for unemployment payments that will last a few weeks. He's encouraging the feds not to evict people from housing that is uh, federally supported, telling companies they don't need to collect payroll taxes that fund Social Security. Everyone then just simply walked away. So, John, uh, there was clearly a massive gap between what the Democrats wanted to fund. They had a $3.4 trillion bill that they passed and what Republicans wanted to fund. They had about a $1 trillion proposal that they were looking at. But it is sort of shocking that in midst of massive unemployment, complete economic fracture, where you have House Democrats who want to negotiate, a Treasury Secretary who clearly wants to negotiate, even Senate Republicans who pretty much are interested in something, that there's not even negotiation. What is going yeah. on? And do you think it's just this is just a prelude to them coming back and passing a bill quickly in, in a couple of weeks? Well, I had thought that uh, a couple of weeks ago when the talks broke down on that Friday um, at the end of July, 
I had assumed that this would follow the pattern that we we know of, which is things break down and then the, the pressure builds after the breakdown and we get a deal or we get a series of interim, you know, whacks at the snooze bar. So the six hundred dollar weekly unemployment assistance would continue while they work out the rest of the details. So that hasn't happened. And it's a, uh, and there are a number of different inputs here and reasons that that's the case. I mean, there's there's disagreement among Republican senators. There is a lack of uh, negotiating muscle from the president. I mean, remember that one of the arguments for his presidency was that he was a deal maker and that he would be able to get deals done and not have to resort to executive orders. So that might sound like sort of the regular thing that presidential candidates say, which is fine. But since the president is regular in no other way, um, that was a way in which he was supposedly going to intersect with the traditional expectations of the presidency. And he's been basically absent and for good reason. He has no particular and has not been interested in cultivating the kind of persuasive relationship with any Democrats or even a lot of members of his own party that that you would need to get that to happen. As a public matter, he lacks the persuasive skills to change the dynamic. But what's strange about this is the public has not, uh, well, I guess there are two things. One, the public has uh, given him very bad marks for his response to the coronavirus. And while there's a strange disconnect between the way that people think about the economy and the coronavirus, it is, I think, going to become increasingly clear, though it's clear with all the economists I talk to, that you can't fix the economy until you fix the coronavirus. So to the extent that the economy is still in an anemic state, while it's been the one bright spot for the president, I'm not sure how long that be, that stays to be the case. So I would think there'd be much more urgency from the White House. As far as Democrats are concerned, I think they see this as I think they see themselves as having the leverage here because of the, the national poll numbers and because it's hurting those swing state um, Republicans up in the Senate. And I think finally, this is a part of the structural problems we have with Congress in general. Frances Lee is the political scientist I always go back to on this in her work that basically explains that because the houses have uh, switched control so often, all debates happen in the context of who's going to win control of the House or Senate. And so if the Senate control is up for grabs for Democrats, there's not a lot of incentive to give up your leverage because the prize is is potentially regaining control of the Senate and two little figures that just remind us of the structural forces at play here. Between 1980 and 2018, the Senate majority has changed hands six times. The House has uh, shifted four times or five times during that same period. So that's the bigger structural incentive that makes it, uh, you know, uh, that, that makes it hard to get compromise. The yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this in a way, how much better it would be to have a parliamentary system. I mean, I think that probably every day I wake up and I was like, I wish I lived in a parliamentary system In a parliamentary system. We would have we would have a government which had controlled a majority in the legislature and could put forth whatever bills, whatever measures it wanted to put forth. And, you know, if the public rebelled, there could be a snap election and, and a new government could come in. But the, the government was always always be able to act. We have the situation where we have a president who sort of wants to do one weird set of things, the Senate Republicans who want to do other sets of things, and a Democratic House that wants to do other sets of things. Those don't have, you know, the Venn diagram where they overlap is quite tiny, and none of them has, none of them can force the other to act. And and therefore you end up with this, this situation of a frozen government. I think that the, the theory of the United States was, oh, well, there'll be such an, incentive for compromise because 
the public will need things done that these parties will compromise. But in, what we have is is legislators who act in political interest rather than national interest. They are thinking about the the political gain for their party rather than than the gain for the country. What is bizarre to me, and maybe Josie, if you have a take on this, I'm interested, is that for Republicans, it seems to me so clear that for at least the Republicans who are facing election in November, that a massive emergency bill is both good politics and good policy. It is, it will help them and it will help the country. And I'm so befuddled as to why they have not pushed harder for it. Yeah, it's strange seeing like like Ron Johnson saying he hopes the the talks remain broken down. It really is a reminder that these people are not in touch with what's happening on the ground at all. <laughs> They're not in touch with how people are struggling. I think that all the time about working moms even right now, right? That like we haven't set up structures to ensure paid leave or to um, you know, to extend FMLA even further than we had extended it or to um, help daycare stay open because we're seeing daycares close down left and right. We see what's happening in schools. I mean, like the fact that we've prioritized what we've prioritized in terms of reopening that, I mean, I live in Georgia. My governor is just kind of pretending this isn't happening. Right. And um, hearing Ron Johnson say he hopes basically there's no more spending. It, it really signals that there is a failure to acknowledge what is probably the biggest and most unexpected crises, crisis of all of our time. I mean, my grandmother is 90. She's like, I've never seen anything like this. It just erodes long term. I mean, we're talking about short term benefits. Okay, well, if the Senate, the Senate, if you get control over the Senate in a little, you know, in a few months, you're not you're going to wish you hadn't caved. All of that is true. And yet the long term trust of our government institutions actually really matters. And we're just seeing it erode in real time and even faster, I think, than we'd seen it erode in the past few years, which was I thought I didn't know it could go any faster. <laughs> and here we are seeing people just have no faith that their government will protect them in a moment of in, in a moment like this. I think I, I want to I think that's extremely well set up, but I want to push back on something you started with the frame, which is that Ron Johnson or the Republicans aren't listening to people or they're not. I think it's that people have a whole different set of people they listen to. And the ones the Republicans mm -hmm. are listening to and the ones the Democrats are listening to have are seeing different worlds. And the ones the Republicans are listening to have some sense like, oh, all we need is to kickstart the economy. Like that's all that is. And they are business owners. They tend to be richer. Mm -hmm. They are you know, their, their, their views are just very different. I mean, you look at the polling, there's a set of 35% of people who don't think this is a real thing and just want the economy going. And those are the, that's the, the, the core constituency of the Republican party. And so Ron Johnson, I think is listening to the people who are hit, hit the majority of his voters. Right. And that's what's so unnerving is that like that, that, leaves out the 65% of who disagree with that and who whose suffering is really profound. I think two two things on that. One is that I think you're right and it reminds me of the New York Times article published maybe last year or the year before about Arkansas and and how um, ensuring less government spending is really like people I I don't think I realize that people want less government spending, even when it's very clear that it directly 
impacts their life in a negative way. It's not hypocrisy. People are consistent in some places about wanting the deficit down as far as possible, um, even when they know it means their kids won't get as good schools, et cetera. But I think the second thing worth mentioning there is that it's a real question for politicians. Like, what is, I mean, what is your job? And I think your job is to do what's in the best interest of people, even when they're not totally clear that that's in the best interest of them, not to be patronizing, but you don't want to to, to let people walk around without masks just because they don't feel like it when you know that there's like a real impact to public health. You don't want to let the eviction moratorium and even if it's not a major issue that you can tell among polling for your voters. And so there is some sort of moral requirement here. I mean, I know I'm calling on the Republicans to, to show some moral authority that they haven't shown in a long time, but it, it, that is just completely missing right? I mean, we're letting people die and, and we're letting them fall into complete economic devastation. It's, it's, it's kind of unbelievable to me. Here's the biggest head scratcher for me, uh, which is mostly I think of it in terms of the president, but also you talked about business owners. Ron Johnson was one of them. What's the economic behavioral theory for how economic activity starts again? Everybody I talk to, and David, you, you made this point a thousand years ago when this all started. People need, need to feel safe and stop being fearful about the virus to go back to participating in the consumer behavior that is the engine of the economy. How do you get them to do that? Do you just spin them and tell them everything's okay and go back to school and force march them back into the economy? Or do you actually create the conditions that make people come to that conclusion on their own? Because it's their personal safety, it seems to me you have to do the latter. So that's inconsistent with political speech that's all about appealing to your base. If you're only ginning up the people who think wearing masks is an infringement on their personal liberty, you're not doing anything to convince the people who think, hey, let's all wear masks so we don't get this virus, which is the precondition for reopening the economy. So it seems to me at the end of this, a misperception about the way the economy reopens, which is that it doesn't reopen unless you get it, unless you get the virus under control and that you can't talk your way out of this, that political speech that's been narrow casted for so long is ineffective. You need persuasive speech that speaks to the whole country in order to create the conditions that will allow the economy to reopen. And so, like, as long as that disconnect exists, um, this problem will continue and the and the the kind of ineffective solutions will constantly be pressed until, you know, I don't know until what. Last week, I chattered about the This Week in Virology episode that featured Dr. Michael Mina, who's an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It was one of the most interesting hours I have spent in the pandemic. On that podcast and afterwards in a New York Times op-ed, Mina has made the case that a relatively cheap and dramatic change into how we test could be as effective as a vaccine in breaking the pandemic like to put it briefly, we would all do daily tests or lots of us would do daily, extremely cheap, maybe $1, maybe $5 a day tests that would take about 10 minutes and use those tests to find out if we were contagious on that day and if we were contagious to stop circulating ourselves in the world. And this is a different kind of testing, much cheaper testing, much more widespread testing, but Mina argues could be 
incredibly effective, maybe as effective as a vaccine in breaking the pandemic. So hello, Michael Mina. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Very happy to be here. So explain to those who have not heard you on podcasts or on CNN or wherever or who have read not read your op-eds, um, how we test now and how we could test in your vision of how we could test and how that would make a difference? Yeah, so how we test now is uh, diagnostic testing, which is the tests that are the, the nasal swabs, for example, that uh, go to a lab and use a, a, an expensive uh, technology called PCR, polymerase chain reaction, to get a very, very sensitive test, meaning that if you have more or less any virus uh, particles or virus uh, RNA inside of your nasopharynx or your mouth, uh, that that test will pick it up. But it's a test that's really designed to be able to uh, tell people if they are sick with the virus uh, and if the reason that they're not feeling well is because they have coronavirus in the same way that we would do this with flu or other, or other pathogens. The problem with that is that this is a, it's a diagnostic test. It needs to be uh, prescribed by a doctor. It, uh, the results have to be uh, able to be uploaded immediately to the public health authorities. So there's a lot of infrastructure that has to go into running these tests. And what we're seeing as a result of trying to use diagnostic tests for public health surveillance is we're seeing that we just can't do enough. We, we don't have enough tests in this country. So what I'm proposing, and a number of us now, uh, there's been a, a sort of a small army of people uh, from everything up to you know people in the federal government to city mayors and 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 everyone else has uh, really gotten on board with this idea of mass testing, daily, cheap, fast tests that you can use every morning right after you brush your teeth, for example, put in your contact lens, take one of these tests. The idea is that it's not going to be a test whose primary goal it is is to tell you. Have you ever been infected or is it the reason that you weren't feeling well last week or even yesterday? It's a test to tell you simply, do you have enough virus in you that if you go out today, you're at risk of spreading this virus to other people? So its primary goal as a public health measure requires a different outcome when it goes to the FDA for evaluation. And these tests can exist today. They do exist today, in fact. But they're not mass produced because they're currently illegal to produce and distribute and use because they don't fit the diagnostic bill. They're not quite sensitive enough to tell you if you were sick with this virus two weeks ago. So, Michael, um, I guess you were talking, I kept thinking, you know, if you build it, they will come. Um, so how what what are the regulatory hurdles and how quickly could they be dispensed with? Is it just checking a box or is it something more complicated? And would it be possible? What would be the sufficiently large enough location that you would need to try to get this installed so that everybody would see how quickly? I mean, could you do it in a small town um, to to basically do proof of concept so people would move even faster to get this done? Yeah, that's a that's a terrific question. You know, you'd want to roll it out into a town that has cases right now so that you can actually see an outcome. Just recently, we held a roundtable discussion with the mayor of L.A a number of mayors throughout the U.S., and then the CEOs of some of the companies building these tests, uh, and other notable scientists like Eric Topol and others. And the whole idea of that was to try to answer the question that you just asked, which is, you know, could we roll this out? Could we do a pilot study, if you will, uh, to see an effect? The short answer is yes, absolutely we could if, if we uh, could get the, the regulatory landscape in such a way that we could even do the pilot uh, test without 
these companies that are producing the test being at risk for getting shut down by the FDA. And, uh, and so the, to, to get this through the FDA will require, it, it doesn't actually require much if the FDA is willing to create a new pathway uh, where the outcome is not one of diagnostic medicine. Uh, and so that means that they remove requirements for prescriptions, they remove reporting requirements, and it, and it becomes just as simple as a, as a simple plastic pregnancy test you'd pick up at the store. And so if we could get the FDA to say, you know, th- this is a new pathway that we're building, uh, and the outcome of measure here is not going to be the sensitivity to, uh, for example, detect uh, molecules, but it would be the sensitivity to detect a person when they're infectious, or the um, ability to uh, reduce an outbreak to, to nothing. Uh, you know, those would be different kinds of metrics than the FDA is usually uh, focused on, but if they could build that pathway, then I think we could we would have a, a number of different uh, tests available today that could pass uh, every test that that Americans get. In particular, is uh, and this isn't unique to the U.S., but but since we're in the U.S., uh, at least I am. Every test that we normally get is uh, is firewalled, if you will, um, by a physician. And uh, I, I'm a physician, and I don't think that uh, any patients or people that I see would need to have a doctor's note if they want to know their cholesterol. But this is just how we work in the U.S. And uh, and fortunately, we've gotten this far without it becoming uh, extraordinarily burdensome so that people were dying as a result. But now we're at a point where we're seeing this mixture of public health and trying to fit public health through a, a medical physician-patient kind of relationship landscape is just failing. Have we seen any countries that are not the U.S. adopt this? Have we? Is this a? Is this idea of yours something that that is being tried elsewhere? Or nobody else has the number of cases we have, and nobody else needs this because they're doing contact tracing, and they're that's how they're breaking the chain. Is that why it's not happening elsewhere? Yeah. So I would say that the other the countries that are probably in a position to do this and um, would have the the interest in doing it have a like you said have largely gotten their cases. Uh, to a manageable level that, that it's almost not necessary. But uh, there are some countries, you know, this is somewhat of a new idea of how to use uh, these tests. And for a long time, they were just deemed to be less accurate tests. You know, and, uh, and I think a lot of our research, what it's showing is these actually, I, I would say they're not less accurate. You just have to define what it is exactly your target is. And um, now that we've kind of redefined that, and we've had we've, we have the papers there in preprints, but they should come out you know, in the near future in, in, in published versions. Uh, I think that there are a, a lot of people have been getting on board with the idea, and now we're starting to see every single day, more or less, I get at least one, if not multiple, emails from people high up, crown princes and, and prime ministers, and things like that um, have gotten in touch. So I think that we should expect to start seeing uh, additional countries getting these rolled out. I hear a lot. Uh, you know, people, when they write to me, they say, it sounds like you guys are having regulatory troubles. We don't have those in our country. Let's just do it here. It's, we got, I'm a crown prince. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so, you know, these are, I think that we might see, I, I, I think we will see um, these happening. I've been advising a lot of those uh, other countries on, on how to maybe do this. And the and, uh, problem is a lot of the countries that are really eager to do it, um, some in South America, Latin America, they don't necessarily have the funds to really um, build it up. And, and the other part, uh, the other problem is that 
the manufacturing infrastructure, uh, at least the technology development, a lot of it's in the United States. And the U.S. companies just aren't even willing to necessarily go to production with these and spend the extra dollars to go to production until they get uh, FDA approval or some sort of signal from the FDA that it's worthwhile for them without getting shut down. So I'm worried that that alone could serve to you know, undermine the whole effort across the world. Uh, but there are two. There are two tests that are that are being that are now CE marked in in Europe. That's kind of a, a form of uh, uh, approval, uh, similar to the FDA. They're Rapigen and and SD Biosense. They're both South Korean, and they're being rolled out in a number of countries now. Not quite to the scale. Again, they're kind of they were being used as diagnostics. But I think now that we're really showing how this can be used, not as simply a diagnostic, but truly an outbreak control mechanism. I think a lot of countries are starting to reevaluate uh, uh, their their overall strategy and use of this, almost in lieu of a, a vaccine, which currently, as we know, doesn't exist. Right, and even if it did exist, the uh, I saw the Gallup poll said 30, 30 some odd percent of people wouldn't trust the vaccine enough to take it, and then we also have all of the implementation challenges and depending on the government. So even if there is a vaccine, getting it into the population might be a huge challenge. So, it, Michael, if there is a benevolent um, billionaire out there who could go to one of these companies and say, look, I'll I'll freight the cost. Um, don't worry about the FDA. Let's build these and some country will use them and that will demonstrate proof of concept and the FDA, of course, will follow along. How fast could you turn, could you flip the switch here? And how much money are we talking about that the benevolent billionaire would have to give? There are some small companies that are in the space. Small companies like E25 Bio, for example, I, I think could probably um, go to a, one of their manufacturing partners and start making a million or more of these a week. But actually, I've, I've really started looking more at the, there's some other companies, large companies like 3M, so now 3M has this test that uh, I believe uh, could work. I haven't seen the data for it, so you know, but but I'm pretty sure that, you know this isn't tough technology to build. Is the, the one of the key things here? This is actually a pretty routine technology. So if a company like 3M decides that they want to start building just millions and millions and millions of these a day, I wouldn't put a pass in to just start doing that. We would be in a pretty good position to probably build tens or or maybe even hundreds of millions of these. Uh, you know, in a, every single day. So just for people who are listening and are trying to imagine what this actually looks like, because I think there are people who have gone and gotten the test now, they've gone to their doctor's office, they've maybe gone to a drive-through. Um, what, you know, they're, they're experiencing the nasal, they're hearing about the nasal. So what does it look like to have a different test? What it, for, for someone who needs to get tested, what would be the procedure? How long would it take? Let's like sketch it out. Sure. So what, what somebody would do is they would probably open a little plastic tube that they have. They would open up their package of, uh, uh, of swabs. They'd, they'd swab the front of their nose. You'd rub inside the front of your nose. It wouldn't be one of these tests that go way back into the back of the nose. You would do it yourself. Uh, drop the swab into a little plastic tube. Pour a few drops of saline into it, just like contact lenses. And uh, take the swab out. So now you have now you just have a little plastic tube with some with some saline, and if there was virus on that swab, it's now in that saline as well. And then you open up your package, and I, I envision that everyone has a pack of thirty or fifty tests that they get once a month, and uh, and you just pull out one of the paper strips and and toss it into the tube of saline, 
and let it sit there right next to your sink, you know, right after you brush your teeth or whatever. And about five to 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later or so, a little line will show up. And uh, if the line shows up, then you're positive. Uh, if there's no line, then you uh, are negative on this test, meaning you are negative that you are unlikely to be transmitting virus that day. And uh, there will also be a control line so that you know that it's working. So the, every time you use it, there should be one line that does turn positive, but that's a control. And so um, uh, if you see two lines, you're positive. If you see one line, you're negative. Uh, so that's kind of it. It really does have the form factor a little bit like a pregnancy test as well. Michael Mina, I hope that Jared Kushner or or some other muckety-muck Tony Fauci or, or Deborah Burks is listening to you and that we do get at least some of this experimentation. Thank you uh, for joining us and come back another time. Well, thanks so much for having me. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're sitting waiting for your swab to deliver a positive or negative test result, John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? Um, well, I have two chatters. Um, one is that just coming out of our conversation about COVID-19, the New York Times did another study of the actual number of deaths from the coronavirus. And um, they found, at least as of August 13th, that the, re that the real number is closer to 200,000. And basically this is following up on work that they did previously, which was to, to look at what the traditional deaths would have been in the hardest hit areas and find that there was this big gap between what was reported as a coronavirus death and then the uptick in um, total deaths. And they saw that same pattern in this most recent work track and follow the hotspots as they moved around the country. So both confirming the work that they'd done before and and uncovering some of the um, the deaths that just aren't being counted as this spreads across the country. Um, and uh, this week on uh, Thursday was the highest death toll in the United States since May. Um, so this is still, you know, raging, even though uh, People aren't talking about it that way in some quarters. The other thing is just to note that it turns out Bob Woodward, who never stops writing books, has another book that's coming out uh, September 15th. And the reason it's interesting is that um, it's based on 12 interviews he did, or at least maybe more than a dozen interviews he did with the president. The president didn't talk to him for his first book, which was uh, highly unflattering to the president. Um, but now he has talked to him. Woodward also apparently has 25 personal letters that Trump wrote to the North Korean uh, dictator, Kim Jong-un. Um, so basically, in September 15th, we're going to have um, probably the most extensive look into the Trump presidency from the president's own mouth um, that we've had so far. I don't think I've written 25 personal letters to anybody in my life. <laughs> I mean, maybe to some college girlfriend during a during a dark time. <laughs> man, I don't think I've written 25 to my mother, and I'm 50 years old, and she loves letters. Josie, what is your chatter? Well, first, I think you owe your mom some letters. Um, I read this book recently called Big Friendship, which I've been telling everybody about because I think it's so great. Um it's by Aminatou So and um, and Anne Friedman, and it's this incredible book about like how to maintain friendships, how to take care of your friendships the older you get, right? And the thesis of it is kind of like we 
don't see our friendships as important relationships in the context of our lives, but here they are really sustaining us. And I think it's especially interesting in COVID times where all of us are like, okay, what do we need? If we need, if there's an emergency, who do we call, right? Like who are the people we want to build pods with or stay close to or see six feet away in the park or whatever it is. So this book I really, really enjoyed, and I think it's particularly important for the moment. It's interesting because the two authors can't really like do these in-person events where you would probably bring your friends and you would, you know, it would be this sort of communal thing. And instead there's all this distance, but at the same time, I think it's such an important book for the, for the, for the moment. So I highly recommend it. Yeah. That's my main piece of cocktail chatter. It's interesting. I'm going through a divorce. And one of the things that happens when you go through a divorce is that friendships re kind of break and reconstruct themselves. And I, right. it's been, it's been like a real high point of, of this divorce has been the deepening, enriching of friendships and the maintaining of things, which I think when you're in a couple, especially if you're a man, a middle-aged man in a, in a married couple, like you outsource a lot of the emotional work to your spouse and mm -hmm. friendships become collective rather than individual. And it's been, it's been, great uh that that part of i mean i don't i do not recommend divorce <laughs> in general but uh that part of it has been has been great um my chatter is actually I, I felt like as i was thinking of it i was like oh this is probably what josie will chatter about but it is um the news this week that san francisco has become the first county in the nation to give free phone calls to inmates in county jail yeah. and the mayor mayor of san francisco london breed um announced this on Monday, and also she announced that they are also um, cutting prices for commissary items as well, that the commissary has been this real profit center, I think, for the jails and for the city, and the phone, phone calls too, and, and a, the, the contract, uh, the companies that have the contracts are really uh, using it to just to extract huge amounts of money from people who don't have very much. And it's I think all of us understand intuitively that it is important, particularly with phone calls, that people who are in jail and people who are in prison maintain relationships and maintain connections outside as much as possible. The more that people can do that, the better it is for them, the better it is for society when they return, the better it is for the families left behind, the the more peace and community and and connection that people have. And so good for San Francisco for doing this. And I hope that I hope that this is a previews it happening all over uh, or in a lot of other places. Do you think, Josie, is this something that could happen elsewhere? There's a lot of great work being done around this, um, like coming at it from all angles, right? Like trying to get cities to change, states to change. And a lot of it's being done there are a ton of great organizations, but I'll shout one out, which is Worth Rises, um, that really deals with the like different levels of privatization that happen in prison systems, even public prisons. Like we think about private prisons, but the reality is like much many of the services that happen in public institutions are also privatized. And so there's been just increasing kind of pressure around this. It's great to see. Um, and I do think that like we're on a path to kind of deprivatizing not just phone calls, but commissary accounts, medical care, and all of the things that you see really so much worse in prison settings in part because of the privatization. So um, I'll just tack onto that and say people should check out Worth Rises um, as an organization because they're doing really great work around this. Listeners, you 
continued to send us great chatters, great, great chatters. Oof, there were so many good ones this week. And you tweet them to us at Slate Gabfest. Please keep them coming. This week, I want to point to a story that Tim Anderson at, at Tim Anderson underscore R2 tweeted to us. And it was a story um, that is on the BBC, and it's about how a long-forgotten word, Danish word, and I'm going to now garble and mispronounce this word, Samfundsind, Samfundsind, has become a word that's revived in COVID. It's reappeared during COVID, and it's become a kind of rallying cry for the nation of Denmark. Uh, it, it, there's no direct literal English translation, but it's it's something about putting the good of greater society ahead of your own personal interests. And this was a word that wasn't much used, but the Danish uh, leader, the Danish prime minister, started to use this word, and it's now become a word that is in widespread use, and it's used to help get people to act collectively during this time. Just a really interesting story about how language can help shape behavior. So check it out on the BBC. That's our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer. For Josie Duffy Rice and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Good. Glad to hear it. That's great. Uh, yesterday, we, Josie and John and I were kind of like, what should we do for Slate Plus? We've run out of all our good ideas. Well, to be fair, Josie probably had not run out of her good ideas. She, <laughs> she, she hadn't, uh, she, we hadn't, we hadn't exploited all her good ideas. They had not been yet <laughs> mined and, and extracted from the earth the way they have been for me and John. But, uh, About two years ago. Yeah, seriously. It's, we're like one of those like one of those those veins of copper in Nevada that was like tapped out in 1893. Uh this just slurry. It's now just a slurry of poisonous toxic heavy metals. Anyway, I asked on Twitter um for slate plus ideas and oh my goodness, you sent so many great ideas and we will hit so many of them in the weeks to come. It was awesome. And today we're going to use one from you, Brian Bennett. And Brian Bennett, Slate Plus Ideas, if the pandemic magically disappeared for one day only, what are the activities you would prioritize doing that one day, which you cannot currently do or feel comfortable, cannot currently feel comfortable doing? So, John, do you have some thoughts on that? Do you want to take that first? Well, this is, uh, I can't get over my first, there would be a better thing that I should do. But the thing that has been, I think it's because normally we go to Ireland around this time of year, and also I'm missing the friends that we see over there in this extremely remote part of Ireland. And so this is normally the time I'm either there or returning from there. And so I'm trying to think if you had one day, if I could fly, it's a very, it's a pretty hard place part of Ireland to get to. And if I could just go there and basically just touch this one, super remote um, set of rock outcroppings. That has been in my head in this very um, powerful way, which is not my most benevolent thought. 
about how I would use the freedom be- after, you know, there are much better ways to use my time that would be better for my family and for um, my community. But I'm sorry, that was just like, that has been in my head for the last um, several weeks. Josie, what about you? So my sister has a bookstore here in Atlanta um, called Four Keeps Books, which is also a reading room. And she, it has black and antique used books in it. And she has all these amazing books that she doesn't sell because she wants them to be available to the community. Um, And it's just such a cool place. I know she's my sister, so like I have to say that, but I really don't. It's my, we always say it's amazing that our favorite bookstore is owned by a family member because it makes it, you know, sometimes she gives us a discount. Um, So I would definitely go hang out at Four Keeps Books all day like I was doing before this. She has kids books, so my kid's distracted. It's just an amazing place. So I can't wait to go back. That's awesome. That is definitely, uh, that was on my list not for keeps because I don't live in Atlanta, but to go to politics and prose here in Washington and hang around it inside uselessly and just read and gossip with people I run right. into. Um, I have two, I guess, two. I mean, I made a list of a bunch of things. I would. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash Plus to become a member today.